As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Before I was trying to get out of there, he said, hey, man, wait, wait, before you go, I want to ask you to, I'll help you, but I need you to do something for me. I said, what? He says, you should take down the Confederate statutes, especially Robert E. Lee. Those monuments were there to remind them who was still in control. And of course, it hits you like right away, the hypocrisy of one of those monuments being in the cradle of one of the most authentic multicultural cities where our whole ethos is that out of many, we are one and that diversity is a strength. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was happy to get the chance to speak with Mitch Landrew, the recently outgoing mayor of New Orleans and former lieutenant governor of Louisiana. He's the son of a former mayor of New Orleans, Moon Landrew, and the brother of former U.S. Senator Mary Landrew. He's also the founder of the E Pluribus Unum Fund, out of many one, through which he's working to bring people together across the American South around the issues of race, equity, economic opportunity, and violence. I recently read the mayor's excellent book, In the Shadow of the Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, just out in paperback. I recommend it as both a well-written and interesting political memoir and also a moral tale about his decision to take down Confederate statues as part of rebuilding New Orleans to be better after Katrina. We talked about his history, about leadership, race, and politics, and what he thinks we should be asking for from Democratic presidential candidates. I liked what he had to say. Listen to the interview. It's worth your time. So now we have a quick word from our sponsor and then my interview with Mitch Landrew. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and just giving me a quick biography? My name is Mitch Landrew. was recently the mayor of the city of New Orleans for the last eight years. And during that time, with a whole bunch of wonderful people, rebuilt a great American city. Before that, I was a lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana, elected twice, served for six years. Prior to that, I was a state legislator for 16 years, representing a district in the middle of the city of New Orleans. I'm married. I have five children. I'm a lawyer by trade and attended Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. for college. And you have a bit of a political family. Listen, I'm one of nine children. My mom and dad had nine kids in 11 years, grew up as a Catholic kid in the inner city neighborhood, went to St. Matthias Parochial School, Jesuit High School, Loyola University Law School, and otherwise have been involved in some form or fashion in government since I was a baby. What was the first thing that you remember that got you interested in politics? It must have been talked about around the dinner table. The long story shortened is that my dad, who didn't know anybody and know anything, he grew up on Adams Street across the street from a cemetery, sleeping in the storeroom of his mother's storefront store, got himself to Loyola Law School, and then somehow ran for the legislature when he was 29. And in 1960, one of the first things he did as a young legislator was vote against Governor Jimmy Davis's package of laws to keep the schools segregated. I can't really remember a day of my life when we weren't involved 
in politics in some form or fashion, with a lot of it being surrounded by the issue of race. And so I don't really have any memories of not participating in a campaign or having discussions around identity table. When my father became mayor of the city, because he needed to spend time at home, he would come home every afternoon for dinner. And if anybody from the country needed to see him or wanted to see him, he would bring them with him. And so we have lots of stories of lots of different people coming to our house to eat dinner with us and conversations on the phone. My father encouraged us to talk at the table. He never wanted us to sit around and say nothing. So we had pretty robust discussions. But we weren't just a family that talked about politics. I mean, we were a regular family. We all played ball. We all had friends. We all did a bunch of stuff. I spent my life in the street outside of my house playing football or basketball or things like that. We had a wonderful neighborhood where everybody was outside all the time. So we rode bikes, went to the store for my mother, getting whatever it is that we needed that we ran out of, which we did a lot of because we had nine kids and <laughs> and we got to be pretty aggressive so that we could get the biscuit before anybody else would get it. But it was a pretty wonderful time. We enjoyed it. If I remember right from the book, you won your first race by like 50 votes or something? Incidentally, I ran for the seat that my dad had held back in 1960. And uh, one that my sister held before she ran for state treasurer. It was a seat that's right in the center of what we call Broadmoor in New Orleans in Central City. I ran. I remember having four or five opponents. And my wife and I had just gotten married. We were pregnant for our first child. And my wife had been walking the streets with me. And she looked at me and said, you know, if you don't win tonight, that's it. And I said, what does that mean? She goes, we're out of here. (laughs) So. I wound up winning that race in the first primary by, I think, 35 votes, which, of course, earned me the nickname of Landslide Landrew. It was an interesting race. And I'll tell you what it taught me. I knocked on, when you run for the state legislature, as I recall, there were about 10,000 homes in the legislative district. There were about 38,000 constituents that we represented. I knocked on every door more than once. And on that election day, I didn't come in until 8 o'clock and stood outside in the parking lot of what would now be known as a CVS or a Rite Aid. Back then it was called Cats and Best Off. And I didn't quit until 8 o'clock. And it turned out that every one of those votes mattered to me that day. I spent a summer canvassing and talking to people door to door. And there's something very, you really learn something about people through that process. What did you learn? Well, I'll tell you, there are a couple things. I mean, just the hardcore political science of it. Every vote matters. When you walk the streets, when your shoe leather's hitting the ground, you actually see every crack and you pass by every tree. I had this weird recollection of people's doors to this day. What color doors they were, what kind of door hangers they had or door knockers. I can actually remember meeting people way back then because it's a very personal conversation where a person walks outside, you're at that door, you're in a very personal space of theirs. They let you in to their home from time to time if you have a second to go and you have a conversation. And I I got myself into the practice. I'd walk about three or four hours a day. I would have the address of the people who I met and I would get their name and I would go home at night and I would write them a note. Dear Miss Agnes, it was nice to see you today. Thanks so much for sharing with me. I know that you expressed an interest in the streets or in traffic or in whatever issue they were talking about. I look forward to uh, your support and hope to see you again. And besides that being a very personal thing, immediately, that person, every time I found out years later that they would hear you on the radio or see you on the TV, felt like you met them again. You got this very uh, real sense of people's voices, what people really felt, and you came to know in a real way, not what you read in the book, you came to know the rhythms of the street the voice of the people, what their real concerns were. And it helped me really think about how issues affected real people in real time. And it was, and I did it every time I ran. Uh, I ran for the legislature four times. I walked the entire district each time I did it. When I ran for lieutenant governor, I walked the streets and knocked on doors, although obviously you can't knock on every door in the state. And when I ran for mayor, I knocked on doors in the neighborhoods. And it helps you really get a firsthand knowledge that you cannot get through aids or through polls or through stories that people might tell you about the past. New Orleans is a great American city and the state of Louisiana is 
very interesting political history wise. What can we learn from your city and your state that we can apply to the nation these days? Not unlike other places. The city of New Orleans itself, although it is in Louisiana, is wholly different from the whole of Louisiana. As you know, I served as lieutenant governor and I had the wonderful opportunity to travel into little towns and little villages and what we call parishes, what people around the country would know as counties. We have a different name for them. That political environment writ large is different in some ways from being in the city of New Orleans, which as people know, uh, is very urban. But what I found out was that people are very open when they're not really mad about something, which happens from time to time. They're very willing to think about other issues. I learned how interconnected everything is, Not with, especially today when we say, you know, everybody's divided. That might be true about Washington in Congress. It might be true about President Trump. But I, I tell you, when you're on the ground and you're walking the street and you're at the baseball park or you're at the cleaners or you're at the store getting a loaf of bread or picking up some milk or you're at the airport, you come to really appreciate how much we depend on each other and how diverse we are. Now, in the city of New Orleans, which has its own history, it's older than the country as itself. We just celebrated our 300th anniversary. This is a city that is rooted in deep rich authenticity and lots of different cultures that are not only peacefully coexisting, but that meld into each other and create not just kind of a boring gray that comes from putting black and white together or mixing colors, but each vibrant color, each vibrant strand expresses itself in an incredible way. And it's much more like a mosaic. And so our music, our food, our culture, all of those things help us celebrate our diversity. And that's a lesson that, that was learned again after Katrina. We lost everything down here. We lost our schools. We lost our houses. We lost our doctor's offices. Our streets were broken. We were underwater. And basically what happened after that great catastrophe is people started reaching out to each other. And really one step at a time, we rebuilt the city together, which is to say that after any massive catastrophe, people can really come together around a common purpose, no matter how bad it is. And that's a lesson we will learn uh, sooner really than we want to uh, because of what we're going through in America today. You're emphasizing, I think, the universal human qualities of people across the state, and I buy that. But there's also the history of a majority of white people voting for David Duke in some elections and quite a division by race and by party. I think that's true. You know, my sister Mary was a United States senator. She got elected four times statewide. She had been the state treasurer too. I ran statewide and got elected twice. I'm not sure I could get elected statewide in Louisiana. Now, the different politics in the city of New Orleans. When I was talking about people coming together, what I was alluding to is the very real story of people being in the water and actually rescuing people in a boat and watching during our darkest hour all the people that fought against each other, basically realizing literally, I don't mean this figuratively now, that we were all in the same boat. And when you're wet and you lost your house and all the chips are on the table, everybody stops seeing race, creed, color. Nobody asked anybody who was a Republican who was a Democrat. That catastrophic event brought us all together. Now, the next most obvious question is, do we need a catastrophic event to do that again? And unfortunately, we've conditioned ourselves to wait until it really gets bad to start realizing that those those things that pull us apart, that we really invest our time in being hateful about are not really as important as the common good. And I, I just saw in New Orleans, and so to see and to be a part of is to know that it's actually possible because New Orleans is a blessed example and thank the rest of the country for helping us out of how we, we pulled ourselves out of a maybe one of the worst catastrophic events that a city has experienced in a long time. We've seen a number of different of these since Katrina. Obviously, Puerto Rico was awful. Maria was awful. We've seen a number of different mass shootings in cities that have brought cities to their knees, but it's certainly possible. You've also seen, if I might, the bad part of this is that when you're really not digging deep and thinking about other people, you can let fear and anger and frustration and hate pull you apart. And we've certainly had our 
experiences with that in the state of Louisiana as well. You talk in the book about the fight that you had with Duke as maybe a dress rehearsal uh, for how you fight somebody like Trump. It's not that David Duke presaged the oncoming of Donald Trump. I wrote the story and in the book, basically it's a story of when I was in college at Catholic University, my, my having the, the good fortune to travel to Poznan, Poland. And while I was over there, I took a trip to Auschwitz. And as a young college student, I think I was around 20 years old, I walked onto the grounds of that awful place. If you have never been there, you haven't seen it. It's a whole lot different from reading about the Holocaust in a book. You're actually standing there on the site. You can see the ovens. You can see mounds of hair and prosthetics all piled on top of each other. You can see suitcases with people's names on it. And you can try as hard as you can to be immersed in the fact that human beings killed so many human beings who treated them as subhuman. And I thought when I was there, I was just a young guy. I mean, it made me think about slavery in the United States. And it made me think about how we can get ourselves in the position of being convinced that other people need to be either enslaved or killed or treated less than. And I remember thinking that if that ever came my way in my life, I hope I had the courage to, to do something about it. At the time, I was only 20. I mean, I didn't know I was going to run for the legislature, much less be in the legislature at a time when David Duke, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, got elected, who, in my opinion, is not a good guy, who is a self-professed white nationalist and white supremacist, and who just as soon sent African-Americans away and to another country or do worse. And I remember being there thinking, what are we going to do with this guy? You know, should we just ignore him? Um, should we just laugh at him? And my fear was that if we did that, he would actually get bigger and better. And he certainly then went on to run for governor and run for the state Senate. And he was using coded language, which in the South we call dog whistles, that we knew were laced with hatred. And when he would leave a rally, although he wouldn't use bad words, when you went back to the rally and asked people, what did he say? They would explain to you in plain English what he communicated to them. We jump ahead now uh, from 1990 to 2016. President Trump has been less than aggressive about calling out white nationalism and white supremacy. And it's ironic because he calls out everybody else in everything, no matter what. And so you sit there and you go, okay, this is not good. Because my experience was that when you see the rise of white nationalism, when you see the rise of white supremacy, you have to put the light of day on it. You have to call it out. That is not a place. Trust me people of America. That is not a place that we want to go. And to not go there, all of the leaders and all of the faith leaders, the political leaders, the business leaders have to say, that is a bridge too far. That's not who we are. In America, we can argue about being left or right or progressive or moderate or conservative or whatever it is, but we come to the table of democracy as equals, and we are not going to countenance philosophy based on one race being superior to the other. It's really important for us to do that. I really like your book as a memoir and just to hear the story of your life. The fulcrum of the book, I think, is really this conversation you have with Wynton Marsalis, where you really then turn to this big fight that you take on in New Orleans on the statues. Talk about that conversation and why you decided to, to take on that problem. To understand the conversation, you have to appreciate again that Katrina hit in 2005. The city was completely destroyed. The recovery had gotten stalled. I came back home to run for mayor. I got elected with a mandate from the people and their full weight and authority and their participation to completely rebuild this great American city. And we, we literally had to rebuild everything. Remember, 500,000 homes got hurt, 250,000 destroyed, 1,800 people were killed. Everything was pretty much in disrepair. And so we had to rebuild the city. And as you think about rebuilding a city, you don't just put it back the way it was. The people of the city did something that I think was remarkable. They allowed themselves to stay in agony longer than you normally would so that you didn't put it back the way it was, but you did the deep foundational changes so that you could get the city the way it should have been if you would have gotten it right the first time. So we were already thinking about, well, what had we gotten wrong? Why was New Orleans the night before Katrina a descending city? Why was it getting smaller rather than bigger? Why were people moving out than moving in? And as we began to reimagine ourselves, 
we also wanted to hold on to our rich history that was important to us, that was good. And we began to analyze our history. We're in the middle of that. We also began preparing for our 300th anniversary, which had been was four years away now. So in 2014, as we began preparing for that 300th anniversary, I did something that I always do is I asked somebody who's a whole lot smarter than me to help me. And that person happened to be Wenton Marcellus, who was a friend of mine. Now, Wenton's a great trumpet player, but most people don't understand he's a historian as well. And music is as much a medium as an end. And he's a great orchestrator. And so orchestrating an anniversary is a whole lot orchestrating a musical piece. And so in asking him about this, after he politely listened to me, uh, we were at, I think we were at a coffee shop on Convention Center Boulevard. Before I was trying to get out of there, he said, hey, man, wait, wait, before you go, I want to ask you to, I'll help you, but I need you to do something for me. I said, what? He says, you should take down the Confederate statutes, especially Robert E. Lee. It came from just such out of the blue. And I said, well, why why would I do that? Because I knew right away that that was a, that was an old man in the sea fight. That's a big ask. It's not a little ask. And he said, well, have you ever thought about who put them up or when they were put up or why they were put up? I said, no, I never, I'll walk by them every day. I don't think about them. He goes, yeah, that's the problem. He goes, would you think about it from my perspective? And did you know that Louis Armstrong left here because of those monuments? And when he said that to me, besides feeling ignorant, that is unknowing of something I should have known and embarrassed because I had walked by him every day and not really given a lot of concern to how it impacted my fellow New Orleanians. It struck me immediately that what he was saying about Louis Armstrong was a reference to the great diaspora when after slavery and after Jim Crow and after Reconstruction, African-Americans did what any reasonable people would do. They'd leave the area that hurt them. And I just realized, because I had given lots of speeches about people leaving the South Mostly politicians say it like, well, don't you think I should be the mayor or the governor so that I could bring our children home? But they never really said it in the context of African-Americans coming back who had gotten basically expelled after slavery. And I began to think about all the great talent that we had lost. And the most, one of the most talented people was sitting right in front of me who had left New Orleans and now lives in New York teaching us about the great musical art form that the city of New Orleans gave and the melding of our cultures. But he's in New York. And man, he just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I said, you know what? I'll think about it. And I did. And I started researching it, became knowledgeable about the cult of the lost cause, came to learn that those monuments were not put up right after the Civil War and weren't really up there for any other reason but to send a political message to African-Americans that even though the Confederacy lost the war, that those monuments were there to remind them who was still in control. And of course, it hits you like right away, the hypocrisy of one of those monuments being in the cradle of one of the most authentic multicultural cities where our whole ethos is that out of many, we are one and that diversity is a strength. Once I became knowledgeable about the fact that the city owned that property and they were on public spaces and what they were there for, they just didn't seem to fit. And as a matter of preparing the city for our future and giving people hope, they didn't seem to represent who we ever were, who we ever had been. And that's when I really started thinking about the process of taking them down. You mentioned that you took that idea to your father, who was a little skeptical about the fight. First of all, I, I kept it to myself for a while because, quite frankly, I was trying to find a way not to do it. I was like, I don't want it. That's a big fight. It's going to get in the way of everything else that we're doing. Is it really that important? I needed to know things first. But eventually I came to the conclusion that it was my responsibility. We own the land. I was the mayor. A mayor had put them up before. I had the right and the authority to take them down with the blessing of the people of the city. And you had to think about, was it something that was critically important for the future of the city? Once I decided that, I then really went and started asking people who I loved and who loved me and who I really you know, thought was special people, what did they think? And my dad, he's a dad first. He's not a political advisor first. And he had been through some pretty tough stuff. I mean, in 1960, when he made that decision, his life was threatened that, that night. He had a wife at home with four babies, and my mother was pregnant with me. And he lived through a lot of dangerous stuff. As soon as I told him that, he was like, he knew it was coming my way, I guess. And I think he said, you know, you ought to really think about that. And I started laughing and I said, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I said, but you know, I know you better than you know me. 
And if you were in my situation, you'd take them down, wouldn't you? <laughs> and he said, yeah, probably. So it was that kind of conversation. A lot of other people said, you know, you ought to think about contextualizing them, which I did. Thought a lot about that. I uh, eventually came to the conclusion that if the city of New Orleans was going to be true to herself and our public places reflected the soul of who we are as a people, that those monuments were a historical lie, that they only represented four years of our 300-year history, that it actually was an inaccurate recitation of who we were because Robert E. Lee never stepped foot here and New Orleans wasn't a Confederate town. That monument wasn't put up until almost 100 and so years after the city was even here. So it wasn't even an original piece of work. If I was building a city for the ages and I was building a city back the way it should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time, that monument is an indication of how we got it clearly wrong. And I, I had a chance to course correct history and to do something right that was wrong. And as I say in the book, to make something straight that was crooked. And, you know, I thought it was important for the city to take that opportunity. So I bit the bullet with my team. We were still trying to find the right time to do it then because, you know, all politics is the art of the possible. You actually have to not only want to do something, you have to have a, the power to do it and a plan to get it done. But when Dylan Roof, you know, walked into Mother Emanuel and massacred nine of our fellow Americans who were at prayer, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me. It, it was pretty obvious to me that our nation could not turn away from the vestiges of hate that emanated from slavery and the Civil War, and that it was still with us today. And when Nikki Haley found the courage with Joe Riley to take the Confederate flag down, that took away every excuse to have Confederate monuments up, because there is no difference between the Confederate flag and Confederate monuments. They all represent the same thing. And so if you jump forward to today, as though somehow this is ever going to end, and you think about the controversies we're having with blackface and white supremacy and not only the killing in Mother Emanuel, but the shootings in the synagogue and now in New Zealand, I think people have to recognize here that this poison of hate and this seed is still very much in our souls and it has to be extricated. It can only be extricated if we reject it in, in, the, in our symbols, uh, in public spaces, in the way that we speak and how we treat each other, in the policies that we enact and how we invest in the kind of infrastructure and institutional change that give every American a fair chance to have a good job and to make their lives better for the kids than it was for them. When I was reading your recounting of this and some other things, like when you ask on the authority of the state of Louisiana to give the keys of the buses, there's a bunch of times where you sort of take on leadership. It's not every person who can sort of step forward and say, I know what the right thing is, even if you have some inner conflict. What's your theory of leadership? Well, to give your readers a sense of what it is that you're talking about, and then not to mislead them, I'm going to divide this into two categories. How do you lead every day during normal times when it's not an emergency and organize yourself so that you keep moving forward in a thoughtful way and try to lead with integrity and make more good decisions rather than bad? That's one of them. Everybody knows the answer to this. That's just about leadership. It's about organization. It's about listening to other people. It's about trying to get as much good advice as you can. It's about building from the ground up, but at the end of the day, making a decision about not just what to do, but how to do it and try not to be afraid of everything that you should be afraid of and work through that fear. Now, every CEO in America will tell you that that's how they try to run their company. The story that you were talking about happened in the midst of Katrina. And I just can tell you that that time was like being an emergency room physician in a war zone. That was a couple of nights after Katrina had hit. We were still evacuating citizens from the city of New Orleans in buses. People had walked out of the water with nothing but their gym shorts on and a T-shirt and a garbage bag full of whatever they could carry. They were on buses and they were coming towards Baton Rouge, where I was in serving in the emergency operations center with the governor. And the governor's chief of staff asked me to go handle this situation because these four bus drivers had been driving all day. And they were going to drop these folks off. The folks in Baton Rouge had been overrun and necessarily, although they were very wonderful to the people of New Orleans, it was a tense night and it was uncertain about whether these citizens were going to be allowed to stay. And so they pulled over at a sheriff's office off of the river. And I had gone over there with a couple of people because there were some young men who were National Guardsmen working with me. And I asked them if they knew how to drive buses. And they said, no. I said, well, we're going to learn. 
And we went over to the sheriff's office. I was a lieutenant governor at the time. We were in a state of emergency. I was acting on behalf of the governor. And I asked the bus drivers if they were going to drive anymore. And they said no. And I said, well, that's fine. You need to give me the keys to these buses. And you need to teach us how to drive them. So drive us down to the gas station so we can fill them up with gas. And by the time we got back, we need to learn how to drive these buses. And we did. And the folks got off the bus and got something to eat. And then by the time they were finished, we went back and got them. And we actually drove the buses ourselves to Lafayette and left the keys of the buses there. Now, there's nothing heroic about that or really full of leadership. It was one of these things where you just had to get it done. You couldn't worry anymore about what necessarily the rules were. In my life, I have to say, you either have to find a way or you have to make one. And in that instance, we had, I don't know, a couple hundred folks who were wet and tired and exhausted. They were traumatized. And the last thing they needed to hear was that they got stuck on the side of the highway. And so you just kind of pulled the trigger. Now, I saw a thousand people do things like this during Katrina. This is why I'm telling you, this is not an exception to the rule. All kinds of people did things like that, not because they were heroes, but because they had to do it. And and I could I could recount I haven't written a book about Katrina yet because it's too hard for me still to think about and to talk about. But I can't even tell you how many wonderful stories. I'll tell you one. I was driving through the streets of the city. I mean, maybe the second day I had driven up to the corner of Napoleon and St. Charles, which is a prominent corner. Water was lapping up onto the street. And I saw this gentleman who was red faced. He was in a truck and I introduced myself to him and he was kind of skittish. And he said, I'm not going to tell you who he is, but he was a pastor from Dallas who had snuck into the city and he was rescuing people. And I got to talk to him. I said, how did you get here? He goes, I snuck in here. I said, did you drive? He goes, I drove all night to get here. I said, what have you been doing all day? He said, I've rescued 300 people. And he goes, but I feel really bad. And I said, why? He goes, because I I brought my boat, but I ran out of gas. And he goes, I stole gas from people's cars by siphoning them out of the thing. And I said, Pastor, you know, I said, listen, I think God's going to forgive you for that. Don't you think? <laughs> you know, it was a very poignant moment. But this man had, had left his house, drove here and had saved 300 people. And to this day, nobody knows about what he did. If he hears this, he'll know who I'm talking about. I don't want to embarrass him. But we, we saw that like tons of times, which is why when I get really down in the dumps, you know, and I get really bummed out about what's going on in Washington right now. I can tell you what, I'm 100% sure that when the chips are down and when we're called to purpose, the people are going to respond. It's lovely to hear that kind of thing. I want to ask you a few things about politics currently. I know you you gave some thought to running for president and maybe haven't fully ruled that out yet. But what advice would you give to the numerous Democrats who are in it about how they should run at this particular time? Well, first of all, public service is a, is a very honorable profession. I'm not embarrassed to say that I'm a politician. It's what I chose to do. I love it. I think I got pretty good at it. I made lots of mistakes, but I did a lot of good things, obviously, with the help of a lot of other people. The thing that I'm most chagrined about is how hard it is to be in public service these days. And this is not a partisan issue. It's, it's hard for everybody. Uh, because it's gotten so personal and so nasty and so mean. And that is, as a general rule, is not good for our country because we can't seem to solve big problems in Washington, D.C. I do actually want to say this, though. On the ground where mayors live, Republicans and Democrats, we get a lot of stuff done. And there's a huge amount of innovative stuff going on across the country in towns and villages. I'm really talking now about mostly D.C. Secondly, most elections kind of break down, at least in our lifetimes, but for the immediate past and the present that we're in, between who's conservative and who's liberal, who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. And we've been playing within pretty safe boundaries. You can go back to Eisenhower and all the way through until President Trump's election. Those parameters were pretty well set. Donald Trump has exploded those and destroyed them. And those barriers don't exist anymore. And now we're in a place that this country has never been and hopefully will never be again. But it's important to recognize that we're outside of the rails of where we have been. And there are not a whole lot of guardrails keeping us where we need to be, although the institutions seem to be holding. We've never had a chief executive, Republican or Democrat, that has been so assaultive of the institutions that we set up to keep our country at peace. And so this is a very dangerous time. And 
the reason I observe it that way is because this election, I hope, does not turn into just a blase Republican versus Democrat, because that's not what we're doing. The Republican Party, as we have known it, that was run by George Bush or Ronald Reagan or the elder George Bush, or that was evinced by John McCain or Mitt Romney or Jeff Flake or whoever, doesn't exist anymore. And so this election really is not about Democrat versus Republican. And it's really, hopefully, not going to be about President Trump because everybody kind of knows who he is and people have made their judgment about him. They either love him and they're going to die for him or, or they want to walk across the street when he's coming by. And, and I just think people ought to leave that for what it is and quit hoping that he's going to change. He is who he is. He says what he means and he does what he says. And that's either good or bad, depending on who you are. I happen to think it's just terrible. This election ought to be about who we are as Americans and what we really stand for and what the principles are that we want to live by. And then we can get into an argument about how to actually approach those things. And I hope that the Democratic candidates think about it like that, that they're not running to be the head of the Democratic Party. They're running to be president of the United States, all of the United States. And I hope that the Democratic Party doesn't make the mistake during the primaries, the voters or the candidates, of thinking that they're just talking to a very narrow section of the country, which is to say that you have to give people room to not be ideologically bent. And you have to be prepared to, here we go, compromise, because you have to get something done. The one thing that distinguishes Washington right now from everybody else is they actually get nothing done. And that's not good. And the country can't, I mean, maybe they'll tolerate it, but it's not good for us. And all of this talk that we do every day, we haven't seen any massive movement on education, any massive movement on infrastructure, any massive movement on solving the immigration crisis, which is a, which is a problem for individuals and businesses. We haven't meaningfully done anything about the fight against cancer. We haven't done anything meaningful about pharmaceuticals. We have taken a couple of good steps towards solving the opioid crisis, although it's a very small step with a very, very large and debilitating and growing problem in the country. And so as we spend all this time yelling at each other, I hope people notice that not a whole lot of stuff's getting done. What you're saying resonates with me about what we should be looking for, but there's kind of an unreality to the way we campaign and some parts of the process by which we select the nominee. What do you think is missing from the dialogue right now, or how could we get it on track? You know, it's funny in this campaign, people are talking about institutional. When I say institutional, I mean the institutions of like the electoral college or how Congress works. Sometimes those institutional structures force people to talk about things that seem out of touch. Like the other day, I noticed that uh, when the resolution came from the House, that I think the House voted for unanimously one senator who happened to be Lindsey Graham in this case, but you could just put any one of the hundred guys by his name, could stop the country from talking about it. Now, that to me seems really weird. I don't think anybody in America would say, okay, we're at a community meeting and a hundred of us think that we ought to talk about something. And one person gets to say, no, you know, I'm a big shot. It doesn't get to go anywhere. That just kind of seems insane to me. Here's another thing. I think that most people in America think that when Congress acts, that somebody walks onto the House floor and somebody says, hey, I have a great idea. Why don't we talk about this for a while? And if you don't like what I'm talking about, you offer amendments. Let's you know, throw it back and forth and eventually vote and the majority wins. That's not what happens either. What happens in Congress is the Speaker of the House, whoever he or she may be, gets to say what comes up on the floor and they only do it if half of their caucus, which is to say 25% of the people, give permission to even talk about something. Now, who in their right mind at a, at a booster club for a baseball or a soccer thing would ever run their business like that? And so I just... I sit there and I kind of think, well, okay, that's what produces the extremes during the primaries, to, to put it in politics. you got to go to states and, you know, the first thing the candidates have to do is tell everybody in the state how they're going to give them everything they want. The national media pretends that the, that the progressive side happens to be the most vociferous. These candidates feel the pressure very early on to say, well, I'm going to tilt far left and then I'll tilt back when I get to the, close to the nomination. It just seems kind of like a, a false environment to have to run it. Now, I don't belittle the candidates for doing it. One of the things I would say to the public is be careful what you ask for. 
we can't demand everything of these candidates because they cannot be everything to everybody. Hire the person that seems to know the most, that has a big heart, that's got a good vision, that's going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. That's going to tell you not what you want, but, but help you figure out how to get it. And if the answer is, I'm sorry, you can't have everything right now, you have to wait. You know what? You got to wait. There is a way to take aspiration, which is important, like we're going to go to the moon, and then say, but you know, we can't go tomorrow. It's going to take us 20 years to get there as long as you're heading in, in that direction. And I, and I fear that during the Democratic primaries, these candidates are going to be forced to, and they should really push back against this, try to be everything to everybody because it just doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And it's not good for the country. It does seem like some people are making this that couldn't be kept politically. How do you think that the candidates that win this can unite the party? What do you think is the message that unites everybody? I want to go back to what you said. You know, you said, you know, who is the person that can keep the promises that they make so that they can unite everybody? The weird thing about what happened with President Trump, and I think he's unique in the history of American politics, is his voters knew he could not keep the promises he made. He knew. Remember, early on, I think it was Nunez said, you guys don't understand. You keep taking the president literally, not figuratively. I'm going to build a wall. Well, what they heard was, He's for keeping people out. I'm not saying they don't care whether he built the wall or not, but if he doesn't build the wall, at least what they heard was he's for me. Now, what, he, what they've also heard is he's going to fight to the death. Even if he loses, he's going to fight, and they wanted a fighter. So there was an interesting amount of political jujitsu that he did when he was talking about that. So candidates, when they're running for office now, are trying, I think, to think about how to display the essence of their character, not necessarily be perfectly precise. And it's important to try to get a sense of it. I will kind of give the public this little hint. Most politicians want to please the public. That's the first rule that they should remember. So they should be careful what they ask for. The second thing is this, is that nobody's really prepared to be president. I certainly, when I became mayor, even though I had 23 years of experience, I was pretty experienced. I wasn't ready for what that office threw my way. When you get in an office like that, pitches are coming fast, they're coming hard. And then lots of things happen that you don't expect. And so it's not so much that you want the people that are running to be right about every issue. You want to know that they're prepared to handle really dangerous situations. The presidency is a thousand times harder than any other job there is in the world. And the second you walk in there, the National Security Advisor is going to walk in and tell you something nobody in the country knows about some awful thing that's about to happen. You better be surrounded by people who are smart and figure out how to fix it. And then they're going to say a hurricane hit. And then they're going to say the stock market dropped. You need people that are smart and have good character and know how to solve problems. And that, to me, is a more important character trait than whether somebody happens to have the right answer today about how to provide health care to every person in the country, although I think that's a critically important issue or how to put an infrastructure bill together. Something like two-thirds of incumbent presidents get reelected, especially in times of relative prosperity like we have right now. Why do you think we didn't win? Well, you make two really good points that people should not forget. In my experience in my life, I ran nine races, or one seven, most of them in the first primary. One of them that I lost, I ran against an incumbent. And I was reminded that incumbency is very powerful. And if you look at the numbers, most incumbents are not beat. So the president starts off just with that historical advantage. Secondly, when the economy is really good, it's almost impossible to beat the person that's in office. So unlike most people, I think the president starts off in a, a stronger position than people are giving him credit for. Now, the thing that is most curious and the thing that makes you think that it's possible, and in my opinion, even probable, is because it strains imagination why his numbers are so low if the country's doing so great. And I think most Americans intuitively know that what we're going through now is not right. There's something wrong. There's something off balance. And I think Americans want to get back in balance, and they're pretty clear that he's not going to get us there. I think they think he's dangerous. He's demonstrated just this past week by his incapacity to not beat up John McCain, who's been dead for some time, that he's not focused on keeping the country safe. 
and that there's a real danger that the country could implode on itself. And I don't think Americans like that. I think they're going to be very tired of him. Now, if he happens to win, it could be for a whole bunch of different reasons. Maybe the Democrats nominate somebody that the rest of the country doesn't know as much about, or president regains his mind that he seems to happen to have lost and uses some of what his obvious skills are to become a better candidate, or he decides to become a uniter, which at this point seems impossible. Every day is a new adventure with him. So I think 15 months is a long time. I think each of these candidates that are running are going to have to get tough and get smart and be thoughtful. I think they have an open and welcoming ear from the American people. And my guess is that we're going to have a new president. But, you know, I wouldn't bet the house on it today. I've been tracking a whole lot of people who I think of as sort of political entrepreneurs who've been, since he was elected, really hard to change the country for the better, to fight for democracy, things like that. What have you seen going on in that regard? And what are you up to yourself that you're no longer mayor. As Washington has been in stasis for some time now, people haven't waited around to live their lives and to improve the places where they live. And being a mayor, I'm well aware, having been the president of the United States Conference of Mayors, of all the great work that's actually being done in cities, that is remarkable. Big cities and small, led by Republican and Democrats, people are coming together and all of the innovation in the country has taken place in, in cities, A, and they're not big urban cities either. These are lots of cities that are strewn through the heartland, in the Midwest, and all over the place. And whether it's, it's dealing with AI, whether it's dealing with culture and music and art, whether it's entrepreneurship or venture capital funds or creating new things around universities and investing, it's really happening. You can't deny it. It makes you very hopeful. And so there are also people that are working in the space of social entrepreneurship, and they also have small businesses that are beginning to understand this need for corporate America to become more responsible, to not let free market capitalism run amok without some level of responsibility of giving back to the community. All of those conversations are coming from the ground up. And so, again, I don't want to say the president's not important. He or she is critically important. Words are important, and the president's words are critically important because they have the biggest microphone. But it's not the only thing. And especially in foreign relations, as it relates to national security, uh, war and peace, the president's the one who can bind the country. But you know what? You have 1,400 mayors and 50 governors that are traveling around the world to different countries, signing trade deals and economic development deals and knitting together the United States with, with other countries and doing good work. And so even in that space, it's not just left to the federal government. What does the phrase no justice, no peace mean to you? you know, that's an excellent question. When I was a kid, I loved Dr. King and read a lot about it. And, I, you know, I was always mesmerized by the, the philosophical argument that was made about nonviolence versus by any means necessary and the back and forth going on about how to to get what it is that you need. When I heard no justice, no peace, when I was a kid, I kind of heard it as a threat. Like, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to whoop you and I'm going to take it either through force or through some other thing. And that's kind of what I thought about it most of my life. But in the last couple of years, the more I contemplated it, it occurred to me that maybe what it is, and this is what I believe, it's just a statement of fact, is that when people are not being treated justly and fairly, when they're not given equal opportunities, equal access, when they're not given the benefit of the doubt, when the criminal justice system treats them like less than, and there is no justice, it creates alienation in the community. It sows hatred. And as a consequence, there is no peace. There, there is no friendship. There is no community. And I've come to learn that, it, in fact, this is not a threat. It is a statement of fact, which is why we all ought to fight for justice. Because when you, when you deny justice to somebody, when you take their future away, you're not just hurting them, but you're hurting yourself because there's no way for you to benefit from them realizing their God-given talents and our gifts. I mean, if you think about the back to where we started with the great diaspora when African-Americans left the South because they were so unwanted here, how many doctors and lawyers and nurses and cooks and chefs and entrepreneurs took their intellectual capital and their creative talent and took it someplace else? You know, we lost that. 
And so not only were they were the people hurt who were denied that opportunity, but those of us that were left here were denied the product of the, the full humanity of those people. And we lost that. And I think that's no justice, no peace is a is really kind of an admonition. It's, it's almost like a warning that it's not just for them. It's for you, too. And if you want to have peace, you got to make sure that everybody's got a fair shot. To go back to the conversation you had with Winton, you talked about that causing something called transformative awareness. What do you think the next thing that we might as a country go through in transforming our awareness? I'll walk by those monuments every day and, and didn't really know what they were. And so the more I became aware of them, it transformed the way I thought about myself, my city and the people. And I, I wonder all the time now, I mean, how many things do we walk by that are valuable that we just don't understand or don't know? And we should ask ourselves that question every day. Who am I walking by and not talking to? What kind of beauty is there or value in something or some idea that I just didn't understand because I never took the time? What if we just kind of slow down for a moment and start thinking about each other in a different way? I think the country is actually going through that right now. It won't happen unless people want it to. Like that doesn't happen by accident. You got to slow yourself down. As we would like to say in my neighborhood, you got to slow your roll. You maybe want to walk sometimes rather than ride your bike or ride your bike rather than driving the car and try to see things you never saw. You, and you'll find that we do this all the time, not because we're necessarily bad people and mean people, but we're all busy. I mean, my wife and I have five kids. You know, we were, At one time, we had four schools that our kids were going to. We have baseball teams, basketball teams. We're trying to work. You know, when you're doing that, you have a tendency not to be able to think about other stuff. But if you take a little time and you think about it, you know, you start to be transformed, your understanding of how things work and things that used to be right in front of you that looked a certain way began to look like something else. And it's just a process of change. But I, I want to just, you know, say this to the people of the country. You have to want to do it. Seeking common ground is intentional. You have to choose. You can also choose the vision. And everybody knows that it's a whole lot easier to tear something down in a fight than it is to build something and get together. It takes a lot more time to do the good stuff. But you got to want to do it because you got to think it's important than hanging out in alienation all the time. It's been a great honor to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. That was Mayor Mitch Landrew. He's at un unfund.org it would be a good idea to support his work this is nathaniel g perlman with a great battlefield podcast you can find us at resistance dashboard.com or by searching for great battlefield in places where podcasts are found